Halls of Fame celebrate the most elite and legendary leaders in their field, but there's no one to honor the Halls of Fame themselves for their contributions. Until now. Join me as I tour the country, inducting these revered institutions into my own personal Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. Along the way, I'll interview the curators and historians who fill these destinations with priceless artifacts and inspiring stories. I'm Bradley Barth, and this is Hall Pass. Today's Hall Pass grants us access to the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, North Carolina, a city that's home to the historic Charlotte Motor Speedway and many of stock car racing's most famous teams. Since opening in 2010, the 86,000 square foot museum has welcomed 61 racing heavyweights as of 2023, with new inductees added each January. In this episode, I'll be riding shotgun with Kevin Schlesher, Senior Director of Museum and Industry Affairs. We'll talk about the museum's special nod to NASCAR's illegal moonshine origins and the evolution of cars, safety gear, and trophies over the decades. Plus, Kevin will act as backseat driver as he critiques my racing simulator skills. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. Kevin, I'm so glad I could be here today. Now, of all the sports that have their own Hall of Fame, there's probably none with a more unlikely and bizarre origin story than NASCAR. You know, there are quite a few sports out there that evolved out of, you know, war games and things like that, but this is the only sport I can think of that evolved out of criminal activity. And to the museum's credit, you fully embrace that aspect of stock car history, don't you? Yeah, you know, it's important to embrace our roots, understand where the sport came from. Um, and certainly moonshine running was about 50% of the origin story. Uh, you know, there was professional stock car racing going on before World War II. Uh, and there was also unprofessional stock car racing <laughs> going on. And uh, the brilliance of, of, of Bill France is that he was able to combine the passion of the moonshine runners and, and the cars that they were building with the professional level stock car racing that was already going on on tracks like the Daytona Beach Road Course. So it's our origin story is an interesting hybrid of, of both legal racing and a little bit of uh, fun racing and a little yeah. bit of illegal activity all wrapped up into one. Absolutely. And to celebrate the whole moonshine bootlegging history, you have a moonshine still that's built by Hall of Famer Junior Johnson, right? He got to start transporting bootleg liquor around the Appalachian Mountains, uh, evading the uh, the the police with his driving skills. Yeah, that's right. You know, Junior Johnson uh, is an inaugural class inductee, so he was in the class of 2010 in our first class, and his father uh, was a was a moonshine uh, distiller of illegal spirits uh, up in Wilkes County, North Carolina. And then uh, Junior, his son, um, did that as well for a little, for a little bit of a time. But then he also fell in love with automobile racing. And he was quite successful at it in the early 1950s in the modified division, especially. Um, and the modified division at the time was was using vehicles that moonshine runners were used to. They were running 1939 and 1940 Fords that were highly customized. So if you were building a good moonshine running car, of which 39 and 1940 Fords were good moonshine cars, they had big trunks, strong suspension, the great you know Ford flathead V8. So Junior was used to those cars and, and running them at speed and, and just as importantly, running them on dirt, on dirt roads uh, and, and the tracks, the local tracks and the fairgrounds of the 1950s that NASCAR were running at were predominantly dirt tracks. So to see his story arc is just so fascinating because he goes from, you know, the son of, of a moonshiner and he does some moonshine running himself. Um, he's arrested. 
at least once. I can't remember if it's twice even. And then, you know, he, he parlays this moonshine running career and his sort of natural born mechanical ingenuity and brilliance into joining the emerging sport of NASCAR. And he starts racing in the early 1950s. So NASCAR is about five, six years old. Um, and he starts running in the local tracks up in Wilkes County uh, in the, what was called the modified, well, still called the modified division now. So they were running pre-war cars. So he's used to those types of vehicles. And he parlays this into this really successful driving career in the modified division. He then moves over to the Cup Series where he's equally successful as a driver. And then he gets out of the car and he starts, uh, he becomes an owner. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then he wins three championships in a row with driver Kelly Yarborough. Um, he's an extremely successful car owner for Bill Elliott through the 1990s. Um, and then one of our first Hall of Famers. So he has this fascinating career arc. Yeah. You know? um, so it's, it's really neat. Guys like Junior are really an interesting part of the fabric of the history of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And it even inspired a movie, The Last American Hero, I believe it's called. Yeah, it started as a Tom Wolfe article. Uh, he came down to do a spotlight on the South and, and moonshine running and, and NASCAR. Um, and I think that the, I'm going to get the exact title wrong, but the, the title of the article is, Is Junior Johnson the Last American Hero? Yes. <laughs> and then, then, then the movie is uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's based a little bit loosely on it. Uh, the, the movie takes a lot of liberties from the article, and the article is a very poetic version of Junior Johnson's life. Um, but what moments like that do, uh, whether it's that movie or Days of Thunder or other movies like that, is it, it helps put NASCAR in a more national spotlight. So um, to have a movie, an article like that in the 60s and then a movie like that, I believe, in the early 70s is really good for the growth of the sport. Yeah, and I had read another article recently talking about how some of the old moonshiners would do things like modify their vehicles to emit smoke screens or unleash oil spills or nails on the road to try to try to thwart the authority authorities from uh, catching them. I, I almost feel like I would want to see that in an actual NASCAR race, like your modified division. Yeah. It sounds like a, a real life version of Mario Kart with the turtle shells and the banana peels. I, I almost want to see that. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get there anytime <laughs> soon, for sure. Um, you know, but again, the, the folks that were running moonshine in their cars, that was their vehicles and their mechanical ingenuity was the only thing preventing them at times from getting arrested. So uh, it was um, a very important part of of their moonshine career, and then it, it plays well into automobile racing. Your Hall of Fame features drivers, team owners, crew members, broadcasters, and NASCAR founders slash executives. Is there a particular inductee who's your favorite, someone who's most meaningful to you? Yeah, so it's sort of like uh, I've got two kids. And, and I'll never say which one is my favorite because they're, they're different. Um, and one of the joys of this job and, and overseeing the curatorial affairs department and the collections department is we strike to build really meaningful relationships with each of the inductees or if they're deceased, the inductees' families, because our job is to honor them, uh, to distill their story into an exhibit and a video, um, to celebrate them and also to explain to our guests their relevance and their importance to the sport. Um, so we've built so many great relationships with the first 61 inductees and now the upcoming class, the next three, um, that it's hard to um, really say that there's a favorite or, or one that was more fun or more interesting because we get to know them so well and they all have really different backstories uh, and we reflect that in the exhibit. You know, some uh, want to tell really personal stories. Um, some are about their on-track success. So we have cases full of trophies, and it's not right or wrong, um, but it's really different. And we've been welcomed into their homes and their garages and their shops 
uh, because part of this, what we do is a little bit of, you know, Indiana Jones detective work, right? We know if somebody's getting in and they've got four championships, we have to tell that story. Um, we want to tell, you know, early success or late success or different things like that. And then when we meet with the inductees, we give them the freedom to talk and to imprint their own exhibit and their own story. And that started with the very first class. And and that first class in 2010 set the barometer or set the pace, to use an NASCAR pun, um, set the pace for what all of our inductee videos have become. So, for example, Teresa Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt's widow, um, of all the artifacts, and we were expecting, you know, Winston Cups and different things like that, uh, there was a pair of boots and there was a pair of Prada shoes. And that's nothing we would have asked for. And then we had to ask her, why is this important? And she said, Dale Earnhardt had his feet in two different worlds. He never left the farm. He never left his roots. And that's what the cowboy boots represent. But he was a shrewd businessman. He grew the sport. He was responsible for the expansion of it. And these Prada shoes were what he wore when he rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. So I want people to know the sort of the two sides of the Dale Earnhardt coin. Yeah. Um, Betty Jane France, Bill France Jr.'s widow, said, here's one of his fishing poles. And I'm like, well, this isn't the fishing hall of fame. <laughs> you know, what's the story here? And she's like, he loved his boat. He loved to be on the water. And when there was business to be done, he would invite people onto his boat and they would talk things over while fishing. And this is just a part of that story. And sure enough, when we had NASCAR drivers and executives come in and see the exhibit, they're like, oh, it was fishing pole. I remember those meetings. And sometimes those meetings went well and sometimes they didn't. Mm -hmm. So to this day, we always say, well, we want to talk about, you know, if it's Jimmy Johnson, we want to talk about your seven championships, of course. We want to talk about your dominance at certain tracks, Texas, Pocono, different things like that. But what do you want to talk about? And what's important to you that we may never even think to ask about? And that's yeah. what makes these exhibits so much fun to work on. So when, when it comes back to that favorite is I think I have really personal moments, which each, each of them that I'll, I'll cherish forever and some of which are unshareable. You know, they're, they're told to us in some confidence um, and we'll maintain that confidence. And, and there's been uh, really emotional times because if you've been out of the sport for 20 or 30 years or even two years, and now you're approached by us to reflect on that career. It's, it's quite a, a, a moment for them to reflect on that career because if there's one thing I've learned about whether you're a crew chief or in the media or a driver, when you're in the sport, you are so in it. And you are you cross that finish line on Sunday, you don't think about last week. You think about next week. Yeah. What could I have done better to get to next week? So when we come in, you know, what artifacts do you want to do? And they go into storage units. We went into Tony Stewart's storage unit once, and he had all this stuff. Um, it's a really great reflection moment for them. So I cherish all those moments. Yeah. All right. So it's fair enough that you don't want to play favorites with people, with inductees. Sure. But I am going to force you to play favorites with vehicles. So uh, you have a lot of cars here in the museum, uh, especially in your Road to Glory exhibit, which shows a collection of historically significant racing cars over yeah. the years since NASCAR was founded in 1948. So what's your favorite car in the whole collection right now and why? Yeah, so this one's a little bit easier. Um, and, you know, I, I first of all want to sort of thank everyone who's ever lent us a vehicle here. We're primarily a borrowing organization and, and we can talk more certainly about how we go about that. But everything, uh, almost all of the vehicles we have in the building are on temporary loan. So uh, for us to ask collectors and others to 
let us display their items for a couple of years is, is a really big deal. So I'm always appreciative of that. Um, for cars, it's a little bit easier for me to say favorites because they don't get upset at you or, or mad at you. Um, and I grew up just a huge fan of cars from the 1950s and 60s. That's what I you know cut my teeth on personally as, as a collector and different things like that. Um, so I can pretty confidently say David Pearson's uh, Torino Talladega is one of my favorites. The Everything from about the shape, it has this really nice long nose um, that swoops down in the front for aerodynamic efficiencies because the car was made in the height of what we call in NASCAR the Aero Wars, where aerodynamics became more important than horsepower for a couple of years or, or in tandem with horsepower. Um, it's got that long slope back that's called a fastback. It's this beautiful gold roof with the the dark blue side. You can tell that even talking about it, I can picture it in my head, even though it's <laughs> not right in front of us. Um, and it just looks great. And under the hood, it's just got this huge... Uh, you know, Ford power plant that's just under the hood. It's great looking. The silhouette's great looking. I haven't found an angle that that car doesn't look good to me. Good, uh, you know, so I, I, I like that car. Um, the Wood Brothers recently restored a car for us that's a convertible, um, and, and it's just stunning. So I wouldn't mind taking that around the block as well. Yeah. You know, when you get to the more modern stuff, I like them and I appreciate them, but they're probably not something that um, you'd find in my garage, my personal garage. Right. Um, and then there's been other cars that I just have uh, a little bit of an odd emotional tied to. Um, first car I ever worked on and that I actually drove in high school is a car from the mid-50s. Uh, and we've had some early 1950s Hudson Hornets in the building. And it was really great. We had one in the building. We had to move it around so it was easier for me to get behind the wheel. Um, and I immediately got in it and shut the door. And there was something about the sound of the door and the smell of the interior and the look of the dashboard. And suddenly it was, you know, however many years ago when I was in high school and those memories came fading back. I don't know if there's something they put in the seat upholstery or in the stuffing, but it, it smelled like it just that smell. It hit me like a, a just a ton of memories. Yeah. Um, so those Hudsons are always always fun for me to be around too for for more personal reasons. But yeah, I would say that that that. Torino Talladega is just a spectacular car. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm personally a fan of the classic cars myself. I like that style. It's very yeah. nostalgic. It's almost like if they could somehow find a way to combine the look of the 1950s vehicle, but the aerodynamics and efficiency and yeah. speed of and the, the modern day vehicle and, and safety. The safety, you know, safety, safety is a huge part. That's yeah. true. Fair enough. Yeah. Then it would be the perfect combination because yeah. uh, they are just so yeah. pretty to look at. It's neat. I've seen some videos. There are some people that actually uh, vintage race a lot of these cars and when I see them going around track at speed in these these vintage races, you know, we treat everything like a museum artifact, whether it's a yeah. car or a helmet or a fire suit. Everything's treated, you know, white gloves and everything like that. Yeah. And then there's been cars we've received, had on exhibit for a while. We give it back to the owner, and then a couple of months later, you see it tearing around the track, and I go, that looks like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what it would look like to see one of those vintage racing cars up against a, a modern-day vehicle yeah. and what a race like that would yeah. look like. You actually started to answer one of the next questions I wanted to ask you, which is where do you procure all of these vehicles from? So it sounds like you rely on collectors, you're out there on the hunt. Uh, so where do you find these? Yeah, so it's interesting. The NASCAR Hall of Fame, uh, we opened up in 2010. Uh, we were developed rather quickly, so there wasn't a huge lead time to build up a uh, what a museum would call a permanent collection, so an owned collection. Uh, so what we've done is we've got great relationships, whether it's our executive director, Winston Kelly, um, or now, now myself after having been here for 14 years, or certainly our curatorial staff, is we have this really great network and Rolodex of people that we know that have great stuff. Um, and they come from all different parts of the NASCAR industry and the collector industry. Uh, there are certainly certain teams that retain 
everything, fire suits, trophies, race cars, different things like that. Uh, so we you know, have great relationships again. We can call them up and say, hey, we're working on this exhibit, and here's the topic. What do you have, and are you willing to share it with the public for a certain amount of time? Uh, sometimes drivers have a car. It's a little bit rare. You, know, you think of a driver – uh, you know, coming off of victory lane and putting the car in their collection. Well, the, the car is owned by the team and that car is for them is a, is a tool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a means to win a race. It's not something that necessarily comes off of victory lane and gets mothballed and preserved, you know, in, in the collector car world, there are cars that have certainly gotten used, but you know, they're a little bit more cared for as they are. Uh, race cars have a really long, complicated history uh, they get rebodied very often, so they'll you know run a car and then they'll strip the body off the chassis and they'll rebody it as something else and then they'll sell it and they'll use it. Uh, you know, people always ask, can you get so and so's first car? Like that car's been in, in a scrapyard for years because <laughs> it went from a NASCAR Cup Series to a you know yeah. a lower division to a local division to just being scrapped out. Yeah. Um. So, but certainly teams, we've uh, certain drivers collect uh, collectors themselves. Individual collectors, there are some really uh, impressive private collections out there. And then other museums. We have got great relationships with the museum down in Talladega and Darlington and others that have been really generous. So the NASCAR Hall of Fame is, is interesting. And, and one of the reasons why you know, my staff and I like working here is that we start with the story first. Mm-hmm. So it's always about that story. And then we have to figure out, well, can we tell that story? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we want to do an exhibit about a topic and then you start getting on the phone for two, three months – and there's nothing out there. Well, what do you do? And, and we're yeah. constantly, you know, the exhibit development process is one of constant refinement and sometimes doubling back. You know, so if we wanted to do first rides of Hall of Famers, that's a nearly impossible exhibit to do mm-hmm. because those cars don't exist. But so you can push it so far, and then you eventually have to pivot or give up or go in a different direction. Yeah. Do you find that uh, a lot of NASCAR's early days are lost to history, lost to the scrapyard? I mean, is what what's maybe uh, the the oldest uh, you know artifact that you have on file? Yeah. So artifact wise, we were really lucky. Um, we have artifacts that go back even before the founding of NASCAR. We've got Bill Francis trophies when he was driving for a uh, team owner, uh, Raymond Parks. So uh, we were lucky enough uh, around 2009, um, Raymond Parks, who was the first championship car owner, so the 1948 modified car owner and the 1949 Cup Series car owner, um, he promised his trophy collection to us while he was still alive once he passed away. And we got it. And he was a great collector of his own, of his team's and driver's trophies. So we have, uh, and Bill France, who founded NASCAR in 1948, he was a driver first. He drove before in stock car racing, before NASCAR was founded, before World War II. Uh, so we do have these great artifacts from the 1930s and 40s that tell sort of the the pre-story of NASCAR. Mm-hmm. And those are really important, and we're really lucky enough to have the first 1948 uh, modified and the first 1949 Cup trophy in there. As far as vehicles, uh, we did an exhibit um, on the founding of NASCAR in 1948 season. And it was great because one of the uh, the son of a driver had his dad's original car, but it was still just the shell and it was rusty. But it was really cool to bring in. I mean, it right. was, you know, it was just a really neat historic piece to bring in. So we've been lucky to find some things from the 40s and 50s uh, and bring them in. But there is certainly uh, very few documented original NASCAR Cup cars from the 1950s. They were just totally used up. There's yeah. only one original Hudson Hornet that has documentation left, mm. um, and there was fleets of them. Yeah. There's only one uh, Key Kefir Mercury. Um, Key Kefir was a big uh, 
uh, he, actually, it's a Chrysler. He owned Mercury Outboard Motors, so it gets confusing. Um, so he had a fleet of Chrysler 300s in 1955, 1956, and there's only one left. The Henry Ford Museum has that out in, in Dearborn. So finding cars from the 1950s is really a challenge. It's now a challenge again because of the way that the current next-gen car is developed with interchangeable parts mm-hmm. and chassis and body parts. So it'll be just as hard to do my job 50 years from now as it is for me to do my job now. Yeah. Um, so, And that's just the reality of why are these cars built? Yeah. They are built to compete. They are built to be used up. You know, there's that expression, checkers or wreckers, which means, you know, win or wreck the car trying. Right. You know, nobody's sort of in traffic at a race going, well, I want to save this car for a museum in 20 years. You know, right. They're, right. They're single-minded and single-focused. So yeah. the treasure hunt's really interesting. Trophies get a little bit easier to find because somebody wins and it goes on a mantle and, and they take good care of it. Um, there are stories of drivers that tend to win a race grab a trophy and hand it to somebody in the stands or somebody at a bar maybe the next night or something like that. So mm-hmm. each each story has its own challenge, um, but that's that's part of the fun of the job is, is, is doing that research and that treasure hunt. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you have a, a garage where a bunch of cars not currently on display are, are sitting or do they generally just always get returned to their owner? Do you have like a whole big storage space for vehicles? So a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, so when something comes off display and we're not going to use it, we try to send it back to the owner as soon as possible, mm-hmm. um, just out of respect for them and, 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 and that care and custody and control, we call it. Uh, but we also building a permanent collection. So we've had some pretty signature vehicles donated. Uh, we've had an early 1990s, around 1992, Bill Elliott Thunderbird, uh, a Budweiser car donated to us. Um, we've had uh, a Ricky Rudd Thunderbird. Um, we've had an early uh, uh, truck series truck donated to us. So we're starting to build a permanent vehicle collection, which is also really exciting. Because um, one of the things we want to do here is we also want to be uh, part of the preservation of the sport. We realized mm-hmm. that there were very few organizations. There were individuals, but not necessarily organizations donated to the preservation of the sport. Um, so we really feel we can create a opportunity for the sport to save its history um, so that it doesn't get lost. So uh, we get folks calling us and they say, you know what, we've enjoyed, whether it's a fire suit, a trophy, or a car, or anything like that. Um, and they go, we've enjoyed this, mm-hmm. but now it's time for it to belong to an organization, not an individual. So yeah. um, we're always excited when, when folks donate to us. We've gotten um, really great donations throughout the year. So we're building that. And so they're all uh, down in our basement mm-hmm. under lock and key and cover. <laughs> um, there's very few of us that have keys and access to that space because yeah. we, we treat them you know, as, as with the respect they deserve. Yeah. I do think it's great that in that um, Road to Glory exhibit, how you do have uh, interactive screens where uh, visitors can also see what the inside of the yeah. vehicles look like. So you can actually get a glimpse of what it would be to be the driver in, in, in some of those as well. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, we change out Glory Road every three years. And what we do is we also use a lot of guest feedback. Mm-hmm. So uh, we always survey our guests. We talk to our guests on the floor. Um, when they're visiting the facility and after they leave, we send them a survey and, and, and we're delighted when they give us constructive criticism because that's really how we get better, right? So one of the things that we heard is Glory Road, you're about, even the closest cars, you're maybe four feet away from it, but the cars are elevated from where you're standing. So yeah. you can't see inside of them. There's just, you'd have to do something that's against our rules to mm-hmm. see inside them. And <laughs> we don't want to encourage that, do we? Um, but it's also a legitimate desire. Like I get it. When mm-hmm. I go to a car show and the cars are on the ground, 
I want to see the inside of it. Yeah, and of course you want, you want to, to get in there. Yeah, you want to see where history is made. What was the dashboard that Dale Earnhardt was looking at? What was the yeah. dashboard that Richard Petty was looking at? So um, two glory roads ago, so about six years ago, or maybe seven now, um, we added uh, kiosks on Glory Road with these big touch screens, and we now take 360-degree photographs inside of each one uh, so that you can at least see a, a photo representation. So now you're looking at the actual car. You're only four feet away from the actual car. You can click on this kiosk, and now you can see inside the car because the evolution of cockpits or the insides of cars is just as interesting as the evolution of as the body shapes, you know, you look yeah. at some of these cars. We we're talking about the '67, uh, the the '69 Torino um, earlier. You know, it's it's got one or two bars. It's got a lap belt, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe a shoulder belt by that point. But some of these older cars just have lap seat belts, and you know, they're not much different from the car that you were driving on the street. You know, low back seats. Yeah. Um, and then you look at the more modern cars, and you're fully wrapped in a custom formed seat. You've got the five or seven point safety harness. You've got digital yes. dashboards. Yeah. So seeing that evolution is really great. So that kiosk helps us do that. Yeah, because at this point we're on generation seven. It's gen yeah. seven gen vehicles, seven, basically. Yeah. So it's been through seven iterations. Yeah. So you can see exterior and interior, yeah. uh, some of the big uh, differences. I, I always enjoy talking about the evolution of a particular sport. You know, in what ways does it look so different today than what it did uh, decades ago. Um, And we've been talking about differences in the cars because I would imagine that would be some of the biggest changes, uh, most obvious changes that you would see uh, over the years in NASCAR. Um, You know, what are some of the other big changes to the sport reflected in your collection that you have where you say to yourself as you look over the chronology of everything on display, Man, has have times changed yeah. since the beginnings of NASCAR? Yeah, I mean, certainly the car is, is obviously the most obvious one. You know, you go from the Gen 1 that were just, you went to a dealership, you put numbers on a car, and you raced it, all the way yeah. today's custom or, or purpose-built vehicles and everything in between. Um, I always love looking at the fire suits. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just sort of you look at the 1950s and 1960s, and they're just sort of these cloth-covered jumpsuits. They're not offering a, a lot of heat or fire protection. And then you really see that evolution of you know the robustness of the fire suit you can tell the weight when you're picking them up you know when you're when you're looking at early ones and you you know we have in the 1950s they just had shirts with collars and the brand on it or not even a brand just their name or just sometimes they're just running in a t-shirt yeah um so it's great to see the evolution of the textiles around the sport and then even on pit crews you know they used to not be fully uniformed they were just wearing shoes and sneakers and jeans and a t-shirt so when you look at the videos and the the photos you really see that what the participants are wearing are so fundamentally different um and that's all done for all the right reasons it's done for that evolution of safety uh and different things like that the other fun thing to notice is and you mentioned trophies is the evolution of the branding so when you look at the championship trophies from the 1950s they're just you know they're tall cup, you know, with two handles on it. Grand National Division is what the Cup Series was called in the 50s. So it says NASCAR Grand National Division, and then that's it. And then you get to the Winston Cup era, 1971, 1972, and now suddenly everything is red and white. Suddenly everything has the Winston branding on it. And then you start to see the particular race trophies go from generic, I don't want to call them bowling trophies because they're nicer than that, but they're just generic trophies with a car on top that'll say, you know, Raleigh Speedway or something on it. Now the sponsorship models that that change starting you know 
starting from the beginning, but really taking off in the 1970s. Now suddenly you have trophies. We have upstairs, you know, the a cobalt trophy that's a giant wrench, and it's just yes. really cool. I so, loved the trophy room. Yeah. There was some fun stuff in there. It's neat. I'm trying to remember all of the because uh, some of them were really out there. I, I, one was, I think, a, like a grandfather clock. Yeah. Was uh, Martinsville always has yeah. since the uh, mid 1960s has honored a grandfather clock. Uh, we were just talking. Um, I had family in from Boston, and I showed them the the trophy from Loudon up in New Hampshire. And you get a lobster. You yes, get, there was you a get lobster live one. in Victory Lane, and then yes. um, I just showed them an article about it. It takes about fifty hours to to mount to for the taxidermist to do his thing on on to mount that. Yeah, there's some interesting ones. There's a gas can one. There's one that looks like a gas pump because it's from Iowa with the ethanol yeah. sponsorship. So. <laughs> It's really neat to see them. So that evolution of the trophies that really go from, you know, basic trophies, car on top, you know, brass or bronze or something like that, to these real uh, robust trophies that reflect either the geography of the track, the sponsorship of the race, or anywhere in between. So it's really fun, you know, when you walk down, walk down an aisle in the basement, and you go, okay, you, you know, you can tell just, okay, those must be from the 1950s, and then you get to the 1970s, and there's you know, a little bit more wood in there. You know, they really reflect that era and they would look good in a rec room. You know, if you were to do set design, that would look good in a 1950s living room. That would look good mm -hmm. in 1970s. So it's not that they're better or worse. They just reflect that time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, everything from the, the fire suits and then, of course, pit stops. And we talk about that uh, throughout the facility as well as just, you know, the basic tools that they were using, whether it was, you know, back in the day, it was just a, a toolbox on the mm -hmm. side of pit road. And now there's these giant pit boxes that have, you know, televisions and satellite dishes and, and all these other things that they need to do their job. So um, what's great is that these, the sport keeps evolving in all these multiple different ways. There's the business aspect through whether it's sponsorship or the growth of NASCAR. There's the car that we talked about, pit stops, fire suits, and then the tracks themselves. Yeah. So, you know, NASCAR was predominantly dirt tracks when it first opened. Darlington gets paved in the early 1950s. Uh, you have Daytona International Speedway comes in in 1959. You have these grand super speedways, so that evolution of the tracks and, and just how far it's come. And then just the fact that the track is part of the overall safety of it. You know, the, the car and the driver and the track go hand in glove to make a safe event. Yeah. Um, so seeing all that evolution come through is really interesting. Yeah, and you talked about some of the safety equipment, and this was something similar to what I experienced when I went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and saw yeah. some of the old leatherhead helmets, and you have some old helmets, which, again, don't look like they do much good, right. some of the early versions. And I imagine that and the, the fire suits early on, probably not as fireproof and safe as the uh, equipment and materials that they they make them out of today. Yeah, certainly. You know, when, when we take everything from the car to the fire suits to the tracks, um, NASCAR has been on a steady progression in the evolution of its safety um, yeah. and making the sport um, as, as safe as as possible. Uh, so it's really fun here at the Hall of Fame just to see that evolution and just to go, wow. You know, in the 1950s they're wearing a leather helmet, maybe goggles, maybe not. You know, yeah. and then you see that open face helmet era, and then you see now that's the closed faced helmet, and 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 all the safety that goes into it. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't pretend to even be a safety expert by any chance. So, um, but it's just neat to to see that evolution and how it yeah. happens, and and then there's these moments in time that that create an urgency to it, and some of it's just due to you know, the speeds get higher, the safety has to increase, Right. you know, all these different things that, that make it happen. 
yeah. and make that evolution happen. Yeah, well, certainly Dale Earnhardt, his death on the track uh, was probably the tipping point. There had been several other yeah. prominent racers who had uh, died uh, within a short span of time, and that resulted in the, uh, the car of tomorrow, which was... I think a lot of people see as one of the biggest leaps in terms of uh, safety in NASCAR history. Yeah, and certainly if you take the car of tomorrow and the safer barrier, those two things worked hand in glove. And yeah. you know we do have on display. Uh, it's not open; you can't thumb through it. It's inside of a case. But the the accident report, the crash report, um, NASCAR took that moment very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and you know I, w I won't speak for them; it wouldn't be appropriate. But right. you can see through that report that they took it seriously, and then the innovation, the development of NASCAR's R and D center. NASCAR ensuring that the next generation car was safer and that there was yeah. the, the right reaction to it and the progression towards safety. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on my podcast, I like to play some games sure. with my okay. guests. And one recurring game that I play is superlatives. And that's okay. just basically where I mm. uh, throw out some descriptor words okay. to you, some adjectives, okay. and you tell me uh, the item that you have oh. amongst your collection uh, that best fits this description okay. word. Well, this is going to be tricky. I like it. All right. So we're going to start. Th this one I, I call, what should I steal? Because I'm going to oh. ask you, what's what's the most expensive uh, item you think on display? Interesting. So um, I learned this when I, when I first started uh, my career in museums is the artifact's value is in direct relation to the attachment or the importance that someone has to it. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly things that are replaceable. So if it is one of 10,000 die cast made that year and it gets gone, it's replaceable. Um, in the artifact world, once it's gone, it's gone. So therefore the value is actually zero because you can't put a price on it. It's mm -hmm. truly the definition of priceless. So yeah. if I stole Thomas Jefferson's desk, from the Smithsonian, right? And I burned it, which I would never do. <laughs> um, no amount of money in the world could replace it, right? I could give the Smithsonian twenty billion dollars, and it doesn't matter; it's gone. Um, so I think, in terms of the of the value of something, um, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of that. Um, I certainly know there are things I wouldn't mind on my mantelpiece, mm -hmm. and maybe that's that's a different way to to roundabout answer the question. You know, I think having the first two championship trophies here at the NASCAR Hall of Fame is so important. Yeah. And to have them together, you know, because they were, it started in 48 with a modified division. The Cup Series didn't come in until 49. Those two trophies 75 years ago could have gone their separate ways or just gone. Mm -hmm. They could have been tossed. They could have been lost. If you think about it, in 75 years, I mean, I couldn't find a pen that was on my desk this morning that had just moved over here. So to retain two trophies in like new condition that are that important and they stayed together for 75 years and now they'll be together forever at the NASCAR Hall of Fame, to me that has such historic value that I think those two trophies together are, are how I would answer that. Yeah. Uh, there, are there values placed on the vehicles? Is there the most expensive vehicle? No, we really don't. Um, we have to for insurance purposes when we borrow something. So let's say you were to lend me a vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, we do have to, we ask the lender what is the approximate market value in case of a loss. Mm -hmm. um, that's getting really nerdy into museum stuff. <laughs> um, and sometimes owners have, have they, don't, they don't know. And then you just write current market value, which means if, God forbid, there were a loss, some insurance adjuster would come up with, with a calculation of what it is and others know well they just bought it so they know what they paid for it or you know they know how much they put into the restoration of it um but the market 
the collector car market is always in flux, and the um, the race car market is is the same. So what might be valuable yesterday might not be today. Yeah, um, you know, different things like that. So uh, we do, we don't appraise the permanent collection per se. Um, we operate like other other museums that have you know an umbrella policy and all that's getting into museum uh, nerd land, but <laughs> it's important in our in our yeah. world to know that. Um, but we haven't had. I can say that one of the more interesting cards that we had in here uh, that I hadn't thought about is we did an exhibit celebrating uh, Penske Team Penske's anniversary. Yeah, and we not only had stock cars, we had cars from their other forms of motorsports. Um, and they rolled a car in here, and, and it was very, very valuable. I mean, yeah. it had six zeros, and I can't remember the number that was in front, but they said, by the way, that's a – and that's and that's what it would take. That's beyond its, its historic value. That was literally like the value of the race car itself. Forget, yeah. forget even adding provenance or the history behind it. And I just yeah. like, oh, that's scary. Yeah. You know, and I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but that was an interesting one. And, and we've had – uh, you know, race cars that come off of, you know, auction houses and come in here on display that, that are yeah. in that seven-digit realm. Um, and then there's been cars that, to me, that have been so important and so historically significant that are, you know, the market may not be as hot on them. So that, that right. monetary value is a real challenge. Yeah, interesting. I was just at the Peterson Auto yeah. Museum in L.A., and they had the very first Ferrari ever. Yes. And I think that was... Uh, yeah. eight figures if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, and the interesting thing when you're dealing with um uh whether it's Ferrari, Porsche, whatever it is is that you can benchmark things a little bit easier. You know, yeah. even if it's one of one cuz are one of one Ferrari, so I don't mean to be dismissive of that. Um it's a little bit easier to benchmark. Um I find with race cars are they are only worth what two people are willing to spend on it. <laughs> if two people want something and they have the means, They'll they'll fight over it, and the yeah. the person with the biggest pocket gets it. If nobody wants it, then you know it's a different deal. Yeah. Uh, all right. What item was the most difficult to attain? Something you had to really jump through hoops to get. Um, there was an artifact that I thought I would never get in the building that we did, and it actually wound up. It was a great partnership, so it wasn't difficult to get in per se, but it was one that I never thought we would, and that was Dale Earnhardt's Daytona 500 winning car. Mm -hmm. um, that is obviously, and for all the right reasons, prized by Richard Childress Racing. They have it in their museum. It is a signature vehicle in their collection. Um, so based on all those different things, it was just like, well, that be it belongs there, and it, and it should be there, so I'm not arguing that point at all. Um, but that was a vehicle that I just sort of said, you know, that'll never see Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, we were we were working with Richard Childress Racing on an exhibit celebrating their anniversary. We do a lot mm -hmm. of partner exhibits, especially in the in the Great Hall, because we love to celebrate the sport. And we were talking in a meeting, and we were picking out cars, and they were very generous with the cars that they were offering us, and the artifacts, and the stories, and the photos, and all that. Um, and they had just won the Daytona 500, Austin Dillon, in the number three. Had just won the Daytona 500 on the anniversary of Dale Earnhardt winning the Daytona 500. So yeah. it was this great moment, and. Um, and it was just like, oh, it'd be cool to bring them in together. And Richard Childress said, yes. And I went, oh, <laughs> yes, to, yes. I was almost, I almost had to catch myself. I was like, yes to what? And he goes, yeah. And not for the whole, the exhibit ran, ran, ran for many months, but he was like, let's, let's make that happen. Let's have the two number threes, the yeah. two number three Daytona 500 winning cars in your building. And we had it here for a couple of weeks uh, over a race weekend. So having that car in the building meant a lot to me and the staff personally. Mm. Because what that showed was the amount of 
trust that we've earned. Um, because you have to earn someone's trust to, you know, Dale Earnhardt's Daytona 500 winning car is arguably one of the most famous cars Absolutely. in the sport. Um, and for Richard Childress to trust us enough mm-hmm. to have that, even, you know, for a few weeks, uh, that was a car I never thought I would I would see in this building, and, and having it here, we took that incredibly seriously. Yeah, we were incredibly honored to have it, and we're incredibly grateful um, that Mr. Childress was willing to share that moment with our guests here in the hall. And you have a number three car right now up in your great hall, actually, because Dale Earnhardt's pit crew chief uh, was just inducted in uh, 2023. Yeah. So that's there now. Yeah, yeah. Kirk Shelmerdine is uh, was Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, so in the hall of honor, that's uh, black number three is the car we're using to honor him. All right, one more from this game. Yes. Uh, what's the weirdest item you have? I can tell you the weirdest item we had in the building um, okay. on temporary loan. And I'm going to get it wrong because I'm also not a doctor. Among many things I'm not is a, is a doctor. Um, but in Daryl Waltrip's Hall of Honor case, we had the pins that were in his leg after he broke his leg in that famous wreck that he was in. Oh, that's a good one. So it was titanium rods. And it just – it was – that might be the weirdest thing Okay. We've ever had in the building. All right. Some of those trophies are definitely on the the weird side, yeah. like the lobster trophy. And I don't know if this maybe qualifies as the weirdest, but maybe the most whimsical or caught my eye is uh, there was a, a celebratory victory pinata uh, yeah. on display yeah. uh, from I forget who the uh, the racer yeah. was. So but, uh, um, Daniel Suarez, um, Mexican born. Uh, current driver in the current cup series and one of the things that our team does is we heard from guests right after we opened really we started to hear from guests that um we did a great job celebrating the history but can we bring a little bit more of the current sport in so we have a dedicated exhibit called memorable moments and it looks back on the last year of competition so right now it's memorable moments 2022 um so when when there's a race weekend uh the curatorial team along with our industry relations uh manager uh, we get together Monday morning, and we say, what happened on the track that would make sort of the highlight real? So some of it's predicting, you know, mm. okay, if it happens in March, is it going to still be interesting in November and December or next year? Um, so certainly Suarez winning his race um, as, as a very proud Mexican-American, uh, he had a pinata that he smashed next to his car when he won the race <laughs> on TV, and somebody saved it. Uh, somebody from the team grabbed it and put it in the truck. So when we called and said, what can we have from the race? They said, we have the pinata. So we said, great. So we put that in the case. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting to see how each Hall of Fame represents their inductees. You have 61 in all as of 2023. Uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame has busts. Baseball has bronze plaques with inscriptions. The NASCAR Hall of Fame has, I'm not even, I'm not quite sure how to call them. They're sort of like these crystal monolith type things with, yeah. uh, uh, they have both inscriptions and etchings, but also a short video yes. for each inductee. So tell me a little bit about the effort that goes into each addition to the room. Yeah, so we call them internally, we call them spires. Okay. So that's that's the word that we use. So that's that's our fancy word for bust or plaque. So we call them spires. Um, somebody thought that I was calling them during a tour once aspires, like you aspire to be. Uh, yes. I like that or equally as much. I was like, oh, inspires, aspires, but no, just just spires. Um, and they they are unique. You know, one of the things that uh, we like to do here at the Hall of Fame is is bring the sport to life. This is, you know, and all sports are dynamic, so that's not to take away from anything. Um, But we love to bring the sport to life, especially through video. There's nothing more dramatic uh, than seeing the victory lane, but also seeing interviews about the inductees. So um, the Spires are, I think they're probably around seven foot tall. They've got two different portrait etchings. One uh, is an oval one uh, that's at the top that has a more formal headshot. 
Uh, and the one at the bottom is a little bit more casual. So if you're a crew chief, you might have headphones on it with their name etched on it uh, and their signature on it. And we look at the spire. The spire has to amp answer the very simple question of why are they worthy of being an inductee? So it has their name, date of birth, date of death if they're deceased, uh, three to four bullet points, you know, winner of the Daytona 500, three-time NASCAR champion, whatever their stats are, uh, and then a two-paragraph biography. That is one of the most hardest thing to write. Because if yeah. you take an inductee's life, and I'm sure this is true of every Hall of Fame, it's not unique to us by far. Yeah. If you take anybody's career and go, you have a hundred yeah. to 125 you words. You got to boil it down to target because that room has to target the super fan. Mm -hmm. So if you right now are a super fan of Matt Kenseth, who's up in our Hall of Honor right now, he's class of 2023, and you want to, we want to wow the super fan. We want to do right by the super fan. We also need to address those who may not be familiar with who Matt Kenseth is. We get right. tourists in town that are coming to the Hall of Fame for looking for something to do or to learn about NASCAR, so we have to do that. The most stressful part or the most challenging part is we also have to do right by Matt. So when Matt sees the exhibit for the first time, we need to make sure that those two paragraphs are going to please Matt. And then the video is about three-minute video uh, that highlights the career. So when you add the text and the video uh, and the portrait, um, our goal is to really answer why are they worthy of being a NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee? Yeah, and you have large collections of artifacts from the three most recently uh, inducted members. So you mentioned Matt Kenseth, uh, also racer Herschel McGriff, who still competed at the age of 90. Very, very yes. impressive. Yes, and, uh, and then we had also mentioned before uh, Kirk uh, Shelmerdine, the uh, crew chief for, uh, yeah. for Dale Earnhardt. All right, so you have some very fun interactive exhibits on the second level. Uh, you have a pit crew challenge uh, to see uh, how good of a pit crew member you could be. You also have a racing simulator. Uh, and knowing this, Kevin, I had asked if you could join me prior to the interview to actually watch me run the race so you could critique my driving. Uh, so for those watching the podcast, you'll see a few uh, clips of me uh, stepping into the vehicle. Um, I did try it two days ago uh, as well. Uh, there's also a uh, sort of a qualification practice round. I crashed every single time. It started actually making me paranoid when I was driving my rental car around the Carolinas. Like, I, I, maybe I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Uh, so, so I thought it was going well for the first 30 seconds. Of course... Somebody sure. distracted you and you weren't watching. Of course, of course, I missed the I missed the golden thirty seconds. But but but, but how, how did how did I do? Where did I go wrong? Because I finished ten of ten. Well, one of the things, and just to segue, for we've been talking about history the whole time. You know, one of the things that we also want to do is make sure that we uh, explain how the current sport works. And what better way to do that than a simulator? Yeah. So you know, video games. You know, there's two types, of, and I'm not a huge video game person, but you know, video games that are fun, and then you have simulators that are more realistic. We very purposely went with a simulator. Uh, we use iRacing software. iRacing is an online NASCAR-sanctioned competitive racing league. So don't worry, you can do it at home. You can subscribe and, and really practice a lot. Um, so the simulator uses that, and it is truly a simulator. The car behaves how a cup car will behave. Um, it knows the track, it knows the suspension setups, the, the throttle response, and all those different things. So the, the challenge with the simulator is um, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's the challenge of driving a race car. So, it, you know, when you came down, you know, I watched you at one point, you were on the banking, and obviously the car wants to be on the banking. The banking helps you turn. It, it, it through science, makes you the car 
stay to the track and, and make that turn. And, and I saw at one point, I think somebody was trying to pass you or you were passing somebody who had stalled out a little bit. And all it took was your front left tire mm-hmm. just to dip into the flat part of the track, the apron. And as yeah. soon as you went below that white line, you spun out and went into the wall yourself. So yeah. it's it proves how, you know, you call it the racing groove or the, the width of the track. It proves how important it is and how much the car reacts to the track, how much the car reacts to your competitor, and then how much your brain has to process so much information so quickly. Yeah. You're in the simulator for about five minutes. And I know I've done it in five minutes. And I get out and my heart's racing. My fingers are tense and I'm sweating. And I go, I'm in air conditioning and I did this for five minutes. If you're doing this, you know, if you were in Darlington last weekend at the 500 and you're doing this for hours in the heat, I think one of the things that our simulator does is, yes, it's fun to do and, and everybody gets a good time, but also gives our guests the appreciation of just how hard it is. Yeah. You know, for stick and ball, I know that I can't hit a fastball. You know, I've tried right. to swing a bat and and I can't. But not, you know, more of us have tried to hit a ball with a bat than have driven a race car at speed. Right. So the simulator gives our guests that extra appreciation for just how hard it is to be a NASCAR Cup Series driver. No, I think that's fair because there probably are some people out there that think like, I'm a good driver. <laughs> if I, you know, had the right equipment yeah. and I, you know, like I had the right car, like I could win. And you really start to see how much mental calculation yes. you have to do and and just how, you know, everything is just uh, minute adjustments and, and just the slightest miscalculation uh, can really throw everything off. I do still want to say that I did a nice job deftly dodging a few cars early on. And at one point, I think I was third. But once I crashed once, I feel like I felt like the need to try to keep catching up and I took more chances and the more chances you take then. But, you know, the thing is, too, about these simulators is that uh, a lot of professional drivers also use uh, video games or or simulators uh, to actually hone their skills or to practice a certain course that they know is coming. Absolutely. And there's been drivers that have transitioned out of iRacing or other simulator experiences to become professional drivers. So, you know, the more track time you can get and as long as the modeling of the simulator is accurate with the car and the track, it's they're really valuable tools. All right. So I appreciate the critique on my driving. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you play racing games, you can customize your own vehicle. And in a way, it's almost a little bit of a personality test. Is this person a risk taker or a strategist? Are they brash and bold or do they let the driving do the talking? So I have one more game that I want to play with you. I want to envision a world in which you, Kevin, are joining the stock car racing circuit. Uh, We need to gear you up. Okay. Uh, So I want to know, like, what would be your dream scenario for your mm. what what car you're driving what what course you're racing so the car models currently being used in the cup series are the chevrolet camaro ford mustang and toyota camry do you have a personal preference there um i'll go with ford mustang my mom's first car was a ford mustang so i've got a, a personal relationship with those so I'll go with mustang all right nice uh all right your, what's your car's color and what's your number uh number's easy i'll go with 54 that was the year of my first car so I had a 1954 Chrysler, and uh, I'd probably mimic the paint scheme of that car, which was a baby blue body with a dark blue roof. Okay, yeah, nice, yeah. nice. If I were playing along on this, by the way, uh, I might go with uh, orange. I think orange is my color, uh, and uh, number, I usually do nine for most things. There you go. Speed versus handling, what do you prioritize more in your vehicle? Um, I like to go left and right. I like the road courses that NASCAR has. So if I had a preference to actually drive, it would be a road course versus an oval. 
Yeah. Um, so I'd probably prioritize handling them. Yeah, I like handling myself, I feel like. I think that's what I need, clearly, just based off of my own driving experience. I think the more handling, the better. Probably the less speed, uh, the better for me. Uh, since you mentioned that you like some of the, uh, the the road course races, let's skip to that one for a minute. What What's your dream course that you would love to race? Gosh, I'd probably... Uh I'd probably go with Watkins Glen. Oh, okay, think, in yeah. upstate New yeah. York. Yeah, because I'm a New Yorker, as we talked about earlier, oh, nice. native New Yorkers. So let's go Watkins Glen. All right, I like that. Yeah. What's your racing nickname? Oh, gosh. That's a really hard one. Uh, I was on the radio for a brief blip in the uh, in the 1990s in Binghamton, New York, believe it or not. Um, and, and part of the radio name was Fury because my favorite car of all time is a Plymouth Fury. So let's go with some version of that. Okay, I like it. There I was go. again. I was trying to think a little bit yesterday, coming into it, like what would I? What would be my nickname? And yeah. I couldn't really come up with anything good. S- something along the lines of that. My, my, my initials are Triple B. So okay. the only thing I could think of was like maybe Triple like Triple A is who you call yeah. when your car breaks down. Triple B. So I'm Triple Love B. It. I'm the guy that makes you have to call Triple A after I'm Perfect. through with your car. Love it. Uh, or I, I'll, I'm the one that'll need AAA because I <laughs> crash my vehicle over and over again. And there are some cool nicknames, right, for racers because yeah. you have like, well, Dale Earnhardt we know was the Intimidator, Intimidator. and uh, Richard Petty was right. the, the King. Those are some of the most well-known ones. Yep. But then you had ones that I, I didn't know about, like Awesome Bill from Dawsonville yeah. and uh, Joey Sliced Bread Logano was uh, another one. That one right? I've never heard. I don't know. That oh, one. really? Oh, okay, sure. interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. And so, final one for you. Who's sure. your sponsor? Oh, gosh. My sponsor would be any local Long Island pizza maker. Oh, I love as that. As long as I get all the pizza I oh, want. Oh, why didn't I think of How that? How about that? All right. Gino's in Manhasset. There you would go. Be the Gino's in Manhasset. I would, again, if I was doing orange, I'd do Orange Crush because Perfect. that's like my big vice. Perfect. I think that would be. Uh, all right. Well, that's a lot of fun. Thanks for playing with me on that. Uh, so with that, Kevin, we have officially crossed the finish line. Excellent. But before we go, it is my distinct pleasure to inform you that you've been officially inducted into the Hall Pass Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. Congratulations. You have 30 seconds to give me your acceptance speech. Well, you know, I couldn't do it without all the guys back in the shop. You know, they're really the ones that help it and all the the appreciation from my sponsors. All right. Awesome. No, but truly, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for inviting me uh, inside the hall today. Uh, That's going to wrap things up for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening and watching. I'm Bradley Barth, your hall monitor and wannabe one day podcasting Hall of Famer. Until next time, I will see you all on our next edition of Hall Pass.